Amen. Well, if you will, go ahead and take your Bibles and open up with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick up where y'all left off a couple of weeks ago before we started our Easter series. And so we're going to pick up in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, making our way through a very familiar and very sort of popular text, if you will. Ephesians chapter 2, verses one through 10. Let me make an adjustment here on my iPad. Here we go. It's trying to turn off on me. Let me fix that. There we go. That'll be less distracting if it doesn't turn off on me. All right. So Ephesians chapter two, we're going to pick up this morning in verse one. And what we're going to see is the great transformation that love brought to us. The great transformation that love brought to us. And in the text, we're going to see three aspects of our great transformation through the love of God. So what I want us to do, let's read starting in verse one of chapter two. We'll read through verse 10. We'll pray, and then we're going to walk through this text. What I have found is that when we get to a familiar text, sometimes we are so familiar with it that we read through it, we might even kind of blow through it, and we don't really understand the details of it and the function of it. And so I want to make sure that we sort of hone in on what this text is actually teaching us this morning so that we can apply that truth into our day-to-day lives. And so Ephesians chapter 2, picking up in Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Lord, we are just excited to be gathered together this morning, excited to be able to walk through this incredibly familiar but yet powerful text of Scripture. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of this text, that we would see what is here and we would understand not only what it means, but how it applies into our lives. Lord, how we have been transformed through your great love for us. Lord, we thank you for all that you're going to do this morning. We again surrender ourselves to you and we ask that you would be glorified in us and through us now it's in your holy name that we pray amen 
Amen. Well, in the text again, we're going to see three aspects of our great transformation through the love of God. Now, the context coming out of the first chapter into the second makes this section of this letter a praise for what God has done through Christ. Remember what Corey was able to bring out of chapter 1. Jesus has been raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, and is now waiting for the day that all things will be placed under his feet. He's been given to the church remember, which is now his body as the head, and as such, Jesus has had an incredible impact on the church. Chapter 2 is going to then detail the impact that Jesus has had on the church. We're going to see who we were who we are now, and what we are to do in response. So beginning this morning, let's look, first of all, at who we were apart from Christ. So our first point this morning is who we were apart from Christ. Now right off the bat, it gets ugly fast, amen? And you were dead, And you were dead. The term dead there speaks of both a physical death and a spiritual reality in which we were separated from God. We were dead physically because all of us were, and truth be told, are still physically dying. Right, we we have a, a, a we have a lot of holes in our audience today, but one hole is where the Hammonds would normally be sitting this morning, and that's because Corey has hurt his back, and so Corey's back is hurt. He's down on it. I checked on him yesterday, and here's what Corey responded back. His response to me via text was, "It's fun getting old." Right. Obviously, that was sarcasm, right? Easy to see. And then he put an emoji of a man in a wheelchair because that's kind of where he's at at the moment. It only hurts to sit up, stand up, or sit down, he said. That's all the time. And so his back's hurting. Why? Because his body is physically getting older, like the rest of us are physically getting older. Yesterday, we were out at the ball field, and I had to go and help kind of warm up our pitcher. And I got the catcher's mitt on, and I got behind the plate, and I went to squat down. And here's how far I got. Right there. That's it. It wasn't worth going any further than that, right? Because I know that if I go down too far, my right knee's going to hurt. I know that if I get down any further than that, I might need help getting up. And that's pretty embarrassing when you're sitting in front of an entire ball field of people, right? And so even though the fans behind me in the stands, they're harassing me, the umpires harassing me, the other coaches are harassing me, right here. This is what I got, right? This is all I got. Why? Because my body is getting older. And my body, like your body, no matter whether you're one of the young ones here or you're one of the ones that might be in a class of older here, not pointing anybody's finger, not pointing fingers or calling names, Mr. James, but no matter where you're at, right, we are getting closer and closer unto the end. Because we are born into life, but that life has an expiration date, right? And all of us are getting one step, one day, one breath closer to the end. We are dead physically. But not only are we dead physically, we are also dead spiritually. Why? Because we are born separated from God. Not only are we separated from God, but we are separated from God without hope. There is nothing that you and I can do about our separation from God. So we're dead, physically and spiritually. And notice back in verse 1, we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Now that term trespasses, 
in this context, it's an interesting trespass, it's an interesting term that puts the onus for sin on you and on me. Trespasses speaks of those sins that we have committed personally against God and against God's commands. And so a trespass is when we know the rule, but yet we purposefully break the rule, right? Now, just in case you're wondering, you have committed trespasses, right? Not a trespass, but trespasses in the plural. And if we're being really honest, there's a chance you've committed plural trespasses today before you got to church, right? Especially if you came with someone. Right? If you came with the spouse or with kids or anything like that, chances are trespasses may have already occurred today. And what that does is it puts the onus for sin on you. You have sinned against God. I have sinned against God. Amen? But notice it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The term sins there, it speaks to sort of the cumulative, the, 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 the massive amount of sin that has accumulated and piled up in our lives. It's not just that we've committed a single trespass or a couple of trespasses. No, we are sinners. Sin piles up in our lives, right? And if we don't have Jesus in our life, then there's no way to get rid of that sin. And that sin just keeps multiplying. The, the, the pile of trash, if you will, that's in our lives, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and smellier and smellier and smellier. We are dead in our trespasses and in the massive amounts of sin. The term sin speaks of that massive amount of sin that piles up and the fact that in our very nature, we are born sinners. Right? We, don't have to, we don't have to learn how to sin. That is who we are, or at least who we were, apart from Christ. Right? And if that isn't bad enough, Paul tells us that there are three influences that are working in our lives that make that sin nature that we possess even more complicated to deal with. Notice what Paul says, picking back up in verse 1. He says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. In other words, the world in which we live, and this is speaking of all societies throughout the history of the world, are opposed to God and his standards. And so the world in which we live is influencing us away from God and away from God's standards. Now, I have a feeling I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking that, well, when I was younger it wasn't quite as bad as it is now, right? We refer to those as the good old days, right? In our house, the good old days references when before Carrie and I had kids, but I'm just kidding, just kidding, kind of. But the good old days sometimes is a reference to the way things used to be. But the reality is, if we go back to the way things used to be and we take a hard look at that society when it comes to what it believed and what it taught theologically, at best, at best, those good old days tend to be legalistic and not a genuine picture of what Christ has done and not a genuine picture of biblical salvation, right? Because what was, what was referenced in the good old days is how people were living, not in how God was transforming lives, right? We knew better. We didn't do stuff back then that we were known not, that we knew we weren't supposed to do, but that didn't mean our hearts were better back then, Amen? 
It's just the reality of it. It's not. And listen, the longer I've been here, the more I've kind of learned that when you peel back the curtain a little bit on one of the good old boys, wasn't awesome. <laughs> Amen? Why? Because the heart back then was the same as the heart is today. The heart is wicked. The heart is evil. And unless it's been transformed by the grace of God, then it doesn't matter if we didn't sin quite as openly back then. We were still dead in our trespasses and sin. We were still walking according to the course of this world. And that is true of all societies that have ever existed. The world as we know it is leading us and influencing us away from God's standards. And it is crystal clear in our day and age now. Amen? The, you, listen, we can't, you can't even watch commercials without the world trying to influence us away from God's standards. At our house, we've kind of we've picked up on the ones that we know we need to mute, and we've picked up on the commercials that we know the channel needs to change, Right? Because the world is trying to influence my children into what is right and what is wrong, right? And so the world is influencing us away from God's standard. Now that's bad, but it gets worse because notice what else we see as we continue moving into verse 2. It says that we once walked following the course of this world. The world is influencing us away from the Lord following, secondly, the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, also known as Satan. And so not only is the world influencing us away from God's standard, but the devil and his demonic forces are also influencing us away from God's standards. Now, we live in a physical world, but yet scripture tells us that there is a spiritual reality that is constantly and always at work behind the scene that we cannot see and sometimes, to be honest, have a hard time fathoming, right? But Paul is going to say later in Ephesians chapter 6 that we are in a battle, we are in a war, war, war against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It means that we are involved in spiritual warfare all the time. And the devil and his demonic forces are always trying to influence us and the world at large against God. They are never ever trying to influence us towards God, always away from God and away from his standards. And when we are trying to do things for the kingdom of God, then we are guaranteed that we will be engaged in spiritual warfare. Because it is real and it is exists even if we can't see it. We know it is there and we can oftentimes feel the presence, right? We can feel the effects, if you will. And so Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were physically and spiritually dead because of your sin. And to make things more complicated, your sin is hard for you to deal with because the world in which you live is leading you away from God. The demonic forces around are leading you away from God. And listen, although it's a little too simplistic to just simply say the devil made me do it, the reality is the devil and his demons are influencing you away from God, yes. Right? You can't blame the devil for everything, but the devil is certainly coming against God in your life. Right? But it gets worse. And it's not what you wanted to hear, but it gets worse before it gets better because not only is the world pushing us away from Jesus, not only is the devil pushing us away from Jesus, but our own physical bodies 
are pushing us away from Jesus. Notice that. Third, our own flesh with its sinful passions and desires is leading us against God. The desires of our bodies and our mind are not naturally inclined towards God, but are always towards evil and sin. Our flesh, our flesh is leading us away from God and away from right choices. Yesterday, we, uh, me and Noah and uh, Papa, we went turkey hunting yesterday morning and we came home to find that my lovely, beautiful daughter had eaten four donuts yesterday morning for breakfast, Right? And then about snack time, yesterday about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, my lovely, beautiful daughter went back in and got four more donuts, kind of unbeknownst to us, brought them outside and quickly ate them. All right? Eight donuts. That's right. Eight donuts in one day. All right? So we play a game in our house sometimes called good idea, bad idea. Right? Eight donuts in a day. Good idea, bad idea. Sounds like a great idea. Amen. Right? And you know what? Leon said great idea because Leon's like me. He's like Haley. His body, his flesh, his mind sees donuts and says, woohoo, that's right. Let's get them. Right? Right? Let's get them. Because our body, our minds are leading us to do things that we know aren't the best for us. Right? Now, those are just donuts. No harm, no foul, no real big deal. Right? Just donuts. But if we're not careful... Our bodies, our minds, our flesh will lead us to do far worse than donuts. Right? Watch the evening news. And you will see people who have massively sinned against God, taken life and other things, all because they let their flesh and their mind do what their flesh and mind wanted them to do. Listen, last week, two people, two people in the United States got run over Physically, outside of a car, someone run them over because of road rage. Listen, I've gotten, I've lost my temper behind the wheel of a car. You can ask my family, they've been there, they've seen it. But that's a whole nother level of crazy, amen? What happens in that instance? In that instance, that person's mind and flesh takes over and they do what their body and their mind is telling them to do. And guess what? Their mind, their body just like your mind and your body. Our flesh, if left unchecked, apart from Jesus, is leading us away from God and his standards. And because of all that we have going against us, notice in these verses how Paul describes all of mankind apart from Christ. He says that we are dead, we are sons of disobedience, and we are children of wrath. This is who we are apart from Christ, and this is who everyone is apart from Christ. Paul says it this way, all have lived this way, all mankind. That is all-encompassing. That means everyone in this room and everyone outside this room, that is who we are apart from Christ. We are dead, we are sons of disobedience, and we are children of wrath. And it is a dire dire, dangerous, deadly situation for which there is no hope for us apart from Christ. No matter what we try to do about who we are, we can do nothing about it. Listen, the world is full of people who've tried to live better and do better. The world is full of people who've tried to make better choices. 
right? We have mottos. We have whole clubs and, 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 and groups focused to it. You, got, you, 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 you eat eight donuts a day. You got a problem. We got clubs for that. We make better dietary choices, right? You, you drink too much. We got clubs for that, right? You can go talk to other people who are struggling with alcohol and, and, and we, can, we can try to fix things, right? But you can't fix those things apart from a relationship with Christ. Amen? Because those influences are still there. And if we don't get rid of those things, we have no hope. And so when you get to the end of verse 3, you're thinking, what hope do we have? And then look at what we see in verse 4. You see, who we are apart from Christ is one thing. But secondly, notice who we are because of Christ. Look with me as Paul transitions in verse 4 with two of the most important theological words in the Bible. But God. Don't miss that. Those two words have enormous theological meaning in that text. But God. We were hopeless. We were dead. We were children of wrath, sons of disobedience. We were goners. But God. God did something when we could do nothing. Who we are was no match for what God wanted for us. And so God, who is rich in mercy and love, did something about it. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy. The word rich in mercy, that phrase, it's trying to help us sort of get the idea that God is rich in mercy in such a way that we cannot fathom and we cannot comprehend. Listen, there are... Rich people in the news that are, that sort of make headlines. And so you got like Elon Musk and you got Bill Gates and you got people with, with such wealth that we as normal human beings can't fathom that, right? Like, 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 for instance, you and I probably don't have the opportunity next week to just take a trip to outer space because we want to. Right? Like that, that kind of financial means and abilities is mind boggling to us. Amen? Like that's crazy. Right? I, listen, I drive down the road and I see somebody with a brand new truck and sometimes I go, man, how did they do that? Right? And you put four on the back and I'm like, boom, my mind's blown. Can't get there. Can't even fathom that, right? Much less a trip to space just because you want to, right? That, that's the world these guys are living in. Why? Because they are rich in money. But their richness in money pales in comparison to God's richness in mercy. God is rich in mercy in a way that you and I just really have a hard time comprehending. But not only, notice, is he rich in mercy, but notice what else it says in verse 4. It says, because of the great love with which he loved us. The only thing that compares to God's mercy in, in richness is God's great love for us. God loves us in ways that we can't fathom again, that we can't comprehend. Our minds aren't good enough. Our minds are too corrupt to even know what that kind of love feels like and looks like. Right? We'll experience it in heaven one day. We've experienced the benefits of it in Christ. And we're going to have a taste of what love looks like through our relationship with Christ. But truth of the matter is, my love is always tainted by sin and by selfishness. Right? But not God's. God has great love with which he loved us. 
Now, notice what happens in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 because this is absolutely awesome because what God's going to do is God is going to transform our lives. Meaning everything that we once were, we no longer are because of Christ. Notice what it says in verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, notice this in verse 5, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive Together with Christ. Notice the contrast between who we were and who we now are. We were dead, but God has made us what? Alive. And he's made us alive together with Christ. How did God make us alive? God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross in our place so that Jesus died the death that we deserved. But in the context of this text... We're not mourning the death of Jesus any longer. Why? Because he's been raised. Amen? He's seated at the right hand of God. And he's waiting for the day that all things will be placed under his feet. We're celebrating. We're praising God in chapter 2 because of what God has done through Christ. Amen? And so we were dead, but now we've been made alive together with Christ. How? Because we have a Savior who defeated death on our behalf. Amen? And so we were dead, but we're not dead any longer. Notice as well, we were being influenced by the devil. We were sons of disobedience under the influence of the devil and the demons. But notice what happens in verse 5. It says, we've been made alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we've been raised up with him. And he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Don't miss what just happened. We went from under the influence of the prince of the power of the air to now above the influence. So we are now seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You want to talk about a promotion? Amen? Like, like just fathom that for a moment if you can. Right? We were, we were being influenced, being led astray. We were following, Paul says, the prince of the power of the air, Satan. But because of what Christ has done, we've been transformed. We have been lifted from that place and we have been placed in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Now again, this is one of those theological sort of issues in the New Testament where we understand that has already happened, but yet we do not yet fully experience it in this life, right? Right? We, we still know that spiritual warfare is raging in our lives, that we are waging war against the devil and his demonic forces all the time. Don't worry about it. When we get to chapter 6, we'll see how clear that is. Right? And so although we have already been seated in the heavenly places with Christ, we don't yet fully experience what that means. But one day, one day we will. Amen? One day the course of this world will no longer be an issue for us because it will have been dissolved and gone away. One day we'll no longer have to worry about being influenced by Satan because he will have been fully and finally defeated and thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Amen? But notice the contrast. We were dead, now we're alive. We were under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. Now we've been raised and seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And we were children of wrath who were angry with God and who deserved the wrath of God but that's not who we are in Christ look in verse 7 
says in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. We don't experience God's wrath in Christ. In Christ, we experience his grace. Amen? And his grace is huge. It's the immeasurable riches of his grace. Think, think about it this way. Think of an infomercial where, where I'm trying to sell you a vacuum cleaner, right? You, you've seen those, right? Whether it's Dyson or, or, or something else. Like here's infomercial, we're on TV, I'm, I'm on the TV, you're looking at me, and I am trying to sell you a vacuum cleaner. And here's how I do that. I start with carpet that is relatively clean, right? And then I get my buckets of dirt and filth and slime and goop and all the gross stuff. And the more junk and nastiness that I put and sprinkle on the carpet, the dirtier the carpet gets, right? And the dirtier the carpet gets, the more impressed you are when I break out the vacuum cleaner and I make one run down the middle of the carpet. And there is this massive contrast between what the dirt that is still there, and the dirt that was removed by this fantastic, amazing vacuum cleaner, right? And before you know it, you're on the phone, you're doing it, you get one free if you act now and you avoid shipping and handling, or maybe you have to pay extra shipping and handling, and and you've been impressed because of how much dirt the vacuum cleaner removed from the carpet. Well, in the same way, understand how impressed we ought to be with the amount of filth, dirt, sin, trespasses, and grossness that God removed in our lives. His immeasurable grace towards us. Right? And what does it do? Notice what it does in verse 7. This is the point. Why does God do this? Because of His love for us? Yes. But, more importantly, God does this in verse 7, so that in the coming ages, that means the ages that were coming from the time of Paul's writing, which includes today all the way through the end of eternity, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul says. God did this in your filthy lives. He took care of all of your sin. The piles and piles and piles of garbage that you had piled up on your carpet. And he removed it all. Not only because he loves you, but he wanted to demonstrate to others how rich in grace he was. And how much God could do in transforming a life. And so what God has done in us and through us is done so that God can be glorified. Because if God can save wicked people like us, God can save anyone. And God deserves all the praise and the honor and the glory for it. Amen? And so when we get to the end of verse 7, here's our response. Wow! Look at our great, awesome, gracious, merciful, and loving God. You want to look at me? Look at the piles of trash that God took out of my life. Look at all the dirt God out of my carpet. Right? Don't look at me because I haven't done anything. Paul makes it clear. By grace you have been saved in verse 5. Right? It is, it is God's grace in me that has transformed me from who we were to who we are. Amen? But listen. God's work in our lives doesn't stop there. 
Remember the context. We are giving God praise for what God has done. God has completely transformed us. We were dead. Now we're alive. We were under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. We've been raised together. And now we're seated in the heavenly places. We were children of wrath who deserved the wrath of God. But through Christ, we have been given the immeasurable richness of His grace towards us in Christ Jesus. God's wrath was taken out on His Son so that instead we could get the grace. Unbelievable. Amen? But not only have we seen this great transformation from who we were to who we are, but notice what we do in response. Number three, what we do because of Christ. Now, I want you to focus with me on verses 8, 9, and 10. And we're going to spend a few minutes here. And so I want you to have your Bibles open. I want you to look at the text. I want you to focus in on the terms that we're going to be looking through. Because here's what I have found. We really, 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 really know verses 8 and 9 really, really well. Matter of fact, a lot of us can probably quote these verses from memory. And again, sometimes familiarity with verses causes us to forget what they actually mean. Right, And so we're going to focus in and make sure that we understand what verses 8 and 9 mean. And then we're going to notice that they're followed by verse 10. Right? That don't quote verses 8 and 9 unless you also go into quoting verse 10. Because verse 10 is as equally as important to verses 8 and 9. Right? And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump in to verse 8 and we're going to look for what we do because of Christ. So in verse 8, Paul writes what have become two of the most famous verses in all the Bible. And so let's make sure we understand them. Paul says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved, which is exactly what he said back in verse 5, By grace you have been saved. But here notice he adds to it. He says, For by grace you have been saved Through faith. Alright, so let's pause there. We understand that it is God's grace in our life that saves us, not what we have done or not what God owes to us. Right? Remember who we were. (laughs) Amen? God didn't owe us anything but judgment and death because of who we were. We were already dead. He made us alive. We were following Satan. He brought us up to the heavenly places. We deserved his wrath. Instead, he gave us his grace. We do not deserve the grace of God. God does it because he wants to show how awesome he is as God. Right? And so we understand that we have been saved by grace. But then Paul adds this little phrase, through faith. Here's what that means. It is faith in Jesus that applies God's grace into our lives. Yesterday, we went to the ball field. And yesterday, I'm proud to say, I got my first legitimate sunburn of the summer season. Right? And I say first because it's going to happen again. Because, I mean, just look at how pale I am. Sunshine, sunshine's out, 80 degrees. I'm going to get a sunburn. Because here's what I've learned. Well, here's what I haven't yet learned. I guess it's probably a better way to say it. Just because we have sunscreen... I have learned the hard way and yet to fully, I guess, learn the lesson because I'm still getting sunburned that the sunscreen doesn't do me any good unless I have applied it in some way, shape or form to my skin. Right. How many times has Carrie offered like she did yesterday? Do you want sunscreen? And I go, no, I'll be all right. Right. Just the fact that we've got sunscreen for some reason, I feel like I'll be all right is just because we have it available. 
But if I don't apply it, it doesn't do me any good, right? Well, listen, just because Jesus did all of these things and provided salvation for us by grace, if we don't apply it, it doesn't do us any good. And so how do we apply God's grace to our life through faith in Christ? Just because God did all of these things, just because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, just because he's seated in the heavenly places waiting for the day that all things we placed under his feet, just because that has happened doesn't mean that you and I, by default, get God's grace. God's grace only happens if we respond by faith in Jesus. Right? So, faith in Christ is how we apply God's grace to our lives. But notice what Paul says moving on. Because he says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And then he makes it clear. This is not your own doing but it is the gift of God. So how do we have faith in Jesus? Well, I can tell you one thing. If we weren't good enough to choose God to begin with, we're not good enough to choose God even when we know who God is. Right? It is God that opens our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is, and it is God that enables us to choose him and put our faith in him. That is exactly why Paul said back in chapter 1 that we have been chosen before the foundations of the world. In other words, I can't choose God unless God first chooses me. And the ability I have to choose God is not something that happens through me. It is God's grace, God's gift to me. So God opens up my eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. God opens up my eyes and my heart to who he is and what he has done for me. And then God enables me to say yes to him through faith. Amen? And that's what we see in this text. He says it's not, it's not through something that you accomplished. It is the gift of God. And it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. So here's what you and I bring to the table when it comes to our salvation. Nothing. Nothing. God does it all on our behalf. Amen? You say, well, I have to say yes. I agree wholeheartedly. You do say yes. You say yes because God enabled you to say yes. Amen? But that's reality. And, that's, and listen, I'm good with that because I've already determined, I've already figured out that if I have anything to do with it, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to mess it up. How'd y'all know that? Huh? Y'all have known me for a long time too. Amen? Right? And so it is God's gift to us. It is grace that God applies to us. He says, it's not of your works. You can't do enough good stuff to earn your way to heaven. We know that. Right? And because of that, Paul says, it eliminates all boasting. You can't boast about it. You can't think you're awesome. You're not awesome. Go back and read the first three verses. God is awesome. Amen? And that's part of the point of this text. We read verses 1 through 10 and we discover that we are not awesome. God is awesome. Now, we've been transformed into something pretty spectacular. But again, don't look at me. Look at the God that did it. Amen. And then we are done, right? No, we're not done. Notice what it says in verse 10. That's the problem. Sometimes we get to the end of verse 9 and we stop. And when we stop, we miss the bigger picture of what Paul is doing because it's not only about who we were apart from Christ, who we are in Christ, but it's what do we do in response. Notice what we do in response in verse 10. 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a lot in this verse. I, I thought about actually pausing here and, and doing a new sermon on this verse alone next week, but, but I, don't, I don't think we, we need to do that. But I do want to take some time to make make sure we understand what verse 10 is telling us. So notice what it says. We are his workmanship. Think handiwork, if that makes better sense to you. We are the handiwork of God. God has created us, right? Now we know if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter one, we were created in the image of God, right? So we've been created in the image of God, but then what happened in Genesis three that kind of messed up God's image in us? Sin, right? The fall, And ever since the fall of mankind, I'm still created in the image of God, but the image of God is now blurred because of all the sin and trash and dirt that's in my life, right? And so think about, you just, you just cleaned the windows in your vehicle only for children to take their hands and smear dirty hands all over the windshield, right? It was clean, it was clear, it was crystal clear, now it's blurry and dirty and gross, right? And it could also be your dog that does it. I, listen, we've had dogs that do it, children that do it, and sometimes it's daddy that does it. But it's blurred. The image of God is now blurred in me, right? But I am created, right, in the image of God, and I am his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? It means that when Jesus transformed me, the image of God that I bear got a little bit clearer, right? Got a little bit clearer. Some of that dirt. All that dirt was taken away, but I keep touching the window over and over again. It's sin in my life. But what does Scripture says? Scripture say? It says that I am constantly being conformed into the image of Christ. Right? We're being conformed. And ultimately, one day, we'll get to heaven and we will bear the image of God perfectly again. But until then, I've been created In the image of God, through Christ, I am now his handiwork yet again. The image of God is becoming more and more clear. I've been created anew in Christ Jesus. But notice what we've been created for in verse 10. We've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so here's what I want us to understand. If you are here this morning and you have given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you have been transformed. And yes, you have received the blessings of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Amen? But I want you to understand that God now has something for you to do. And I'm talking about something for you to do that is specific to you. You've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works that God has prepared beforehand. In other words, this is God's plan or God's will for your life. That's how we like to think about it, right? God has a plan for your life. God has a will for your life. God has something that he wants you and you alone, you together with the body of Christ to accomplish. But it is specific for you. Now, oftentimes we, we go, how do we know what that is, right? And that's when I would love to take us back to Romans chapter 12 where we realize that if we surrender ourselves to Christ, if we surrender ourselves as a living sacrifice, transforming our minds, spending time in the word, getting the filth out and the good stuff in, God will reveal his will to us. 
So here's the deal. If you're walking with Jesus, if you're following Christ, God will make his will known to you in his timing. Right? How many times have you been in that place where you're like, I'm doing everything I know to do, Lord, and I, I, I just still can't figure out what your will is. That's because you're not ready to hear it yet. It's okay. God's revealing his will in his timing, but God has something prepared for you. And guess what he's doing? He's already prepared beforehand the work for you to accomplish. And guess what he's doing now in your life? He's preparing you for the work. Amen? That's pretty awesome, is it not? God has created this great work for us to do. God's done it beforehand. He's not, he's not creating it now. He's already prepared the work. It says he's prepared it beforehand. What God is doing now in and through me and you, he's preparing us for that work. So that we can do what? We can do the work. Notice, we should walk in them. And so what do we see? We see that God has a plan for your life that he's prepared for you that he's prepared you for, and he is expecting you and I to follow him and fulfill the work. Amen? Now, again, we walk by faith, right? A a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God doesn't let us see the whole thing, right? Listen, if God let you see the whole thing, you'd freak out and run, right? We'd be hiding in our bedroom, in the closet, because... What God has planned for us down there after we have grown and matured, it would, it would freak us out, right? But what we see is God continuing to show us his work that he wants to accomplish next, knowing that he's prepared it for us, he's prepared us for it, and he simply wants us to do it. The good news is he even empowers us to do it, amen? Again, I could, I could do a whole sermon on this one verse, but I just want you to know That God wants to do more than just transform you from who you were to who you are or who you can be in Christ. God wants the next step. He wants you to do that which he has called you to do. Right? Now, what has he called you to do? Well, Well, generally speaking, because you're a part of the body of Christ, he wants you ultimately to be making disciples of all the nations. Right? That that's what it's all about. But individually, Inside of that plan, we have different assignments, right? All the assignments ultimately lead to fulfilling the Great Commission. But individually, God has a plan that he has prepared for you. And he's prepared you for the plan. And he wants you to now do that which he's called you and led you to do. Let's pray. In this text, we see a great celebration and praise for what God has done. But we only can celebrate it if it is true for us. And so first of all, with heads bowed and eyes closed, let let me just encourage you and ask you again. Have you been transformed through the love of God? Have you gone from dead to life? Have you gone from under the influence of the prince, the power of the air, to seated in the heavenly places with Christ? Have you gone from child of wrath to recipient of God's grace? In other words, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Are you following him as evidence of your salvation? Have you experienced the grace of God? If not, 
then in just a few moments, we're going to stand to sing the hymn of invitation. And as we do, this is going to be a perfect opportunity for you to come forward and just say, Will, I want to give my life to Christ. I want to be transformed by the love of God through Christ. And so if you're here and you've never experienced the transformation from death to life, then I want to invite you to come. But I also want to ask you, if you're here this morning and you have been transformed, you can look and see who you were, and now you can clearly see who you are. I want to ask you, are you fulfilling God's will for your life? In other words, are you doing those good works that God has prepared for you, that God has prepared you for? Are you walking in them? Are you fulfilling God's will and plan for your life? You see, in order for us to do it, in order for us to fulfill it, it starts with us being willing to fulfill it. So maybe that's a good place to start. Are you willing to do any and everything God is calling you and leading you to do? And then have confidence. Once we're willing and able It is God that enables us, equips us for the work. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing and revealing to us through your word this morning. Lord, we pray now that you would be glorified in how we respond. Lord, whether at this altar, Lord, whether in our pews, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in how we respond. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.